0: Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, Avoiding Infection, humans are naturally conditioned to avoid infection. It's disgusting. But as it turns out, this natural inclination might be the very thing that needs to be avoided in a church that's marked by mercy instead of sacrifice. Let's turn now To the third part of our series, need for flesh. Well, welcome to uh, this—the third part of the series, avoiding infection. Avoiding infection. Now, uh, if this is the first time you've been here, this is a series that I've specifically been doing to help us navigate this balancing act uh, between—or what I might say—is the intersection of faith and disgust. Those things that disgust us in the world. Before you say no, thank you. I'd rather not. I have a weak stomach. Hear me out for just a minute. This is actually really important that we learn how to navigate this. And on this Sunday in particular, it's going to be very, very important for us to sort of navigate through this. Human beings are disgusted by a lot of things. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it's, it's what we need to do in order to, to protect ourselves. It's a defense mechanism that comes up. You know, if we're disgusted in our body, we got a bad smell. We see something that disgusts us. There was a diaper in my daughter's bedroom this morning. Guess what I did? Left the bedroom, right? It's disgusting. Like, I am out of there. That's what we do. If things like that disgust us in our body, it's smart for us to move away, to get out of that space. But, and this is a huge but, disgust sometimes can be damaging to us. Disgust, there's a bodily component to our disgust, but then it gets unfolded, unpacked in our social environments. It gets unpacked in our morality. It gets unpacked in our religious environments. And those are the areas where it needs to remain in check, right? And so if our disgust response is coming up in one of those areas, we need to balance out and check it against what Scripture says and what that is, is teaching to us. And, and what I described it like last week and, and the week before Whenever these disgust responses come up, we're going to do something as quickly as possible to make ourselves comfortable. If we're uncomfortable in a situation, we're going to do whatever we can quickly to make it right, to make it uncomfortable. But here's the thing, and hear me carefully, sometimes what feels right in the moment is not necessarily right. And what we've seen throughout the centuries is that faithful disciples are often more tempted by what feels right than what actually is right. We ground ourselves sometimes in what feels right, and what feels right may not actually be right at all. And and the perfect example, we talked about this last week, is death. There is a comfort theology that we've created around death. It's this knee-jerk reaction. We're going to give it, you know, and tell it exactly like it is to make ourselves comfortable in that moment. And when I talked about death last week, that's what I that I sort of talked about. I said, death is the ultimate reality that disgusts us. Every disgust response that we have in our lives is built for us to avoid death. It helps us avoid death. And so we're pushing back against that as best we can uh, throughout our life. Here's the problem. Christianity, the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to have a new relationship with death. You're supposed to have a new relationship with decay and with your body. And Jesus introduces this. And if we give in to the comfort theology that is often out there, then we're going to miss the central beauty of what our faith says. Our bodies are not doomed to decay, as we would think. The resurrection actually ends up giving dignity to that which we would think is destined for destruction. All these things are turned upside down. And if we give in to comfort theology, we miss the beauty of that. We miss the beauty of what God wants to do with our bodies and how God wants to resurrect our bodies if we give in to that particular thing. And so last week, I talked specifically about death of our bodies. And I want to veer a little bit away from that, but I don't want to go too far from death today. I mean, this is All Saints Day after all. This is something that's important for us to think about for just a few minutes. But instead of talking about our death and the death that we die, I actually want to talk for just a minute about God's body. Now, this is this is an interesting twist because last week we talked about the resurrection of the body, something that would be central to the faith. This week we're talking about the God, God's body or the incarnation, the incarnation moment of Jesus. This is where God came down in the person of Jesus and became human. And, and I want to focus in on that. And this seems a little weird because, you know, on the one hand, we're, this is very near and dear to us. The incarnation, the incarnation moment is a central piece of our faith. But I would suggest the incarnation moment is also a space where comfort theology can creep in in a really powerful way, all right? Think about it. This is the holiday season, so just imagine this for a minute. You're going to see a lot of relatives you don't normally see, uh, and there's some relatives who are in your midst who are part of the family. You just don't want to admit it, all right? You're going to, you're going to meet a few of them in a couple weeks. There's, there's some relatives that you've got in your family. You don't want to admit it, or, or maybe it's this. You don't understand how they fit into the family, I have some of those relatives. Like I remember when my father and sister passed away, uh, I had a cousin, I-, I think it's a cousin, I'm gonna say it's a cousin, don't really, I still don't know to be honest with you, but I'm told that she is a relative of mine who took to social media like the-, the press secretary for the entire family, like within 24 hours of their passing, right? Just blasted it out there to everyone and immediately, you know, she's just heartbroken over this moment in my family's life and I turned to my older sister I was like, who is this? Right. I have no idea who this is, and I still, like I said, I'm not quite sure who she is to this day. She's a part of the family, all right? Admittedly, she's a part of the family. She's a part of the system that we have at home. I just don't know quite how. I don't, I don't quite understand how she fits in, and, and to be honest, I don't really want to explore it because just she's a little weird, right? So I kind of just say, yeah, she's a part of what we do. She's a part of our family unit. She's a part of the system and structure, but I don't know how, and that's exactly sometimes how we approach the Incarnation of Jesus. Yes, it's a part of the system, but if we admit it, it's a little weird. It's a little odd to think how God might be fully God and fully human at the same time. It, it's strange, and I'm going to accept it as part of the family unit, but I may or may not focus too much time on it, right? It's a part of the creed that has been handed down to us for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven above by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made human. That's what we say. We get it. It's part of the things that we say over and over again. And I know it's a whole part of the thing. Here's the problem. I just don't quite get how. That's where we are. I don't quite get how it's a part of the thing. And And I really don't want to explore it because it just seems a little weird. And some of you are like, yeah, but it's the incarnation. I don't know that that's true. Let me give you an example of how this is true for you. How many of you remember, old enough to remember, a movie by Martin Scorsese called The Last Temptation of Christ? Anyone remember this movie? you got some people in the room who remember this movie. There was a book that came out in the 50s about it. Now, I grew up in Asheville, as many of you know. And in Asheville, I remember that I was seven years old when this movie came out. I was soon to turn eight just a couple months after it came out, but I was seven years old when it came out. Christians, I'm convinced, have always been like the founders of cancel culture. And this is a perfect example of it. We canceled that movie in Asheville. Like there was no watching that movie. If there was a theater that played that movie in Asheville, it was canceled. And this is hardcore like I remember the the movie theater that actually showed it was a movie theater at the Asheville mall it it went out of business within a year after it showed that movie it's the only place in Asheville that showed the movie and it went out of business this is this is how seriously we oppose this movie now for those of you who don't know what the last temptation of Christ is you're at home you're googling it right now just wait a minute don't don't watch it all while I'm, I'm talking just just hear me out for a minute The last temptation of Christ is an exploration of what could have been the last temptation of Jesus from the cross. He's followed by this angelic, childlike figure, and on the cross he is tempted to come down, which we do see that in Scripture, you know, just call the angels to bring you down and and go on with your life. And it it explores if he had done that. So he comes off the cross and in the exploration of this, this movie, he comes off the cross and he gets married. And as a married person, he consummates the marriage with Mary Magdalene. And as this person goes on and on and on, he, he sees other people who are talking about him as if, you know, he's the Messiah and rose from the dead. And he's like, no, I didn't do that. I'm right here. I, I, I came off the cross. I came off. I didn't, I didn't go through it all, right? And so it explores all this avenue of what it would mean for Jesus to be fully human, now, the other part of it that's really interesting is earlier in the movie, before he ever went to the cross, it explored what it was like for Jesus to be associated with prostitutes and sinners. And so it shows him right at a brothel. Now, all of you in this moment, I just, I just want you to sit with something for a minute. As you heard me describe this movie, I want you to pay attention to the disgust responses that might be going on in your body. And I want you to start interrogating those disgust responses. Why is it hard for us to hear this? What what is it about that scenario that disgusts us, particularly when it comes to Jesus? And here's where I think it is. I think if we interrogate that for just a minute, if we just sit with that disgust response for just a minute, we can affirm for us and for our salvation that he was made human. But when it comes to actually seeing him as human, we have a problem with that. The incarnation in this moment, especially if we unpack fully what it might mean to live into full humanity, what that would mean for him and all his life and all those places that we don't see in Scripture, all those things, it's, it's shocking. And we cringe at that. We cringe at the idea that Christ would actually be in flesh. And here's why I think part of our resistance comes up. Our resistance to the incarnation rests somewhere in between what would be our fight against the flesh or our fight with the flesh and our definition of divinity. This is the place it is. We struggle every day. I'm, I'm 41 years old, and I'm feeling the decay in my body. Right, I feel that, 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 that weight all the time. My back's giving out like somebody texts me on, on my birthday. I'm like, well, my back is gone, but other than that, I'm fine. Right, I feel the decay of my body, and I'm fighting against that decay. I'm fighting against that, that propensity towards death. It bothers me all the time, and here's what I want to believe. I want to believe that there is an all-powerful God who stands above and beyond that struggle. I don't want to admit that that God would be within that struggle in any way. I want that God to be beyond that struggle. And so my idea of of both the struggle with the body and my idea of divinity compels me to push beyond it, to believe that God does not rest under the weight of this tension. And here's what I do. I realize it's a tension, but I prioritize the sovereignty and the self-sufficiency of God over the incarnation of God. I will prioritize the fact that God is all-powerful over the fact that God was incarnate. And anything that disrupts my understanding of God as all-powerful and sovereign. Even the incarnation itself, I will push to the side. And when, why, why I need us to understand this prioritization, why I need us to understand this, we do this not because of who God says God is. We do it because of us. We don't do it because of who God displays God's self to be in Scripture. It's not because of who God says God is. It's because of who we want God to be. We've created a comfortable understanding of who God is. God who exists well beyond that incarnate self as one who's all-powerful and self-sufficient. And we form God around that definition of power. And that definition of power distances God from the flesh. It distances God from this flesh that is weak and submits to all these things. And it would be nice right? If God would just sort of pull out from that, because we don't want God to be entangled with our decay, with our death. And this, this is comfort theology. That's what this is. It's comfortable for us to rest in this. And so comfort theology, when it comes to the incarnation, causes us to trade out the incarnate Jesus for a distant divinity, for one who stands well beyond that. And the problem with this trade is that we never see God make this trade in Jesus, Right? God dwells in Jesus as fully God and fully human. That's what we proclaim over and over again. In Jesus, we see the fullest revelation of who God is, and Jesus becomes the starting point, or at least should become the starting point for our definition of who God is. And, and, and like I said, it would be nice if God would just fit into who I say God is, but He doesn't. I see the fullest image of who God is in Jesus Christ, and Jesus often tells me something different than what's comfortable for me to imagine. And it's hard to sort of narrow down where this comes in Scripture and where we see it, because it's literally all over the New Testament, the way this this, uh, sort of gets unpacked. But I do think the reading that Aaron offered just a few moments ago from Hebrews does a really good job. And the reason it does a good job is because there's a group of people, the Hebrew people, who are gathered in this church. And by all estimations, we don't know the author, but we can assume a couple things. The author was speaking to a largely Jewish group of people based on the things that they were saying. And two, based on the way it was written, it's assumed that that book was probably a sermon at some point in time. So the, the author is standing up, reading this out loud as if it were a sermon to this congregation of predominantly Jewish people. And here's what they believed. They believed in a God who was, social, who was distant, who was sovereign, who was all-powerful. Right? This is the God of Moses and the, the priests who came before. And this is the God who would distance himself from the people but would show himself to Moses and the priests. This is the God who would descend upon the mountain but the people would remain at a distance. This is the God who later in the temple would build a giant uh, curtain that would exist between the people and himself. This is the God who remains separate from all The people, and so as we look back at this book and we think about the people who are first receiving it, this God is distanced from any sort of entanglement with us as human beings, and in their eyes, that was okay. That felt right. Right? They didn't want to see this God face to face because if they did, they could die. And in this worldview, there's a very uh, there's a very clear order. There's a very clear hierarchy. In fact, the hierarchy gets kind of spelled out. God reigns almighty, all high. He is sovereign over all things angels rest a little bit below, human beings, and then all the other created order kind of falls under, in place underneath them. That's how the ordering works. And that's comfortable. That makes sense. That's how it should go. And then the teacher stands up in front of the congregation and starts to unpack what we see in Jesus Christ. And it disrupts that ordering in just a, in just a few ways. In chapter 2, verse 5, this is what he begins to say in unpacking this new world. He says, now, God did not subject the coming world to angels. You would assume he would, right? They're just below him. So if I'm going to subject the world to anything, it would be in subjection to angels about whom we're speaking. That's rational. And that makes sense. So who is overseeing the operation, right? Who gets to oversee all that's taking place in the world? And the answer that no one wants to come up with, but they know it in their hearts, is us, right? Human beings are the ones who get the operation of the whole world. And, it, and it's exactly right. The teacher goes on. He doesn't use his own words. He uses something from Psalm chapter 8. He says this You already know this psalm. You sing it all the time in church. You get it. This is something you come up with. He goes, What are human beings that you were mindful of them? Or mortals that you care for them? You have indeed made them a little lower than the angels, but you have crowned them with glory and honor, and you have subjected all things underneath their feet. There's a, there's a flipping. The angels are not above and in, response, and in charge of the order. The order is switched. Human beings are. God has wanted from the beginning of time to use the frailty of flesh as a part of His plan. Yes, we're weak. Yes, we're lower than the angels. Yes, we recognize all those things. But God has given honor to the weaker vessel God has given honor to those things that seem weak in the world. And the author continues in this way. He kind of uses his own words at this point. He says, now in subjecting all of those things to them, God didn't leave anything outside of their control. Everything was within the control of human beings. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. Now let me pause for just a minute. This is the part where you're like, absolutely, everything is outside of my control. Right? We have lived in a world that is beyond our control. If you think that I'm in control of this world, ride with me one time to Asheville on I-26. I'll show you how out of control my world is, right? We are not in control of that. We aren't in control of our finances sometimes. We aren't in control of our relationships. Those seem all out of whack. Our health seems out of our control. How is it possible that you could say all of these things are within our control? And of course, death itself is the ultimate witness against this reality. I am not in control of all things. I can't even overcome death it overcomes me. And our our teacher, as he's explaining this, he understands all of these things. He understands our feeling about this. And he says, and so while we do not yet see, in the next verse, here's what you do see. You may not see that you're in control right now, but let me go on. Here's what you do see. What you do see is Jesus. What you do see is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angel's, but is now crowned with glory and honor. You see, Jesus, who was for a little while, even uh, descended below the angels, rests in the same world that we do, but is now crowned with glory and honor. And it's at this point, you know, if this is like a callback church, everybody is shouting amen, because they're like, absolutely. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the one who overtook everything. And he's going to kind of spell that out. He says he was crowned with glory and honor because... and this is where it starts to change just a little bit. Because in our mind, we fill it in with all kinds of answers. Because he reigned supremely over all the world, because he held advantage over everybody, because he took back the reins of power from the oppressor, because he demonstrated by sheer force of will what was his. He struggled, he fought, he exerted that force. And this is what everybody thinks is going to happen. But listen to what actually does happen. Now he is crowned with glory and honor because of what? suffering death. He experiences the glory and honor of God because of the suffering of death, and he experienced the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He might take in that death for all of us. It it wasn't his power over other people that led him to honor and glory. It was his subjection to the very thing that haunts you and me. It was Him descending into the depths of death itself. It was His willingness to fully participate in the shameful base humanness that actually leads Him to glory. His his taking on of all of who we are, all of who we, who we, we dread being, the thing that we fight against every single day. Christ is the one who takes that into Himself, and it's that thing, that base death, that actually leads Him out of it. And that's why the author kind of drops the bomb on the congregation. He just goes on in verse 10. He says, look, it was fitting then for God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, that he should actually make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect. He would make Christ perfect, not through strength and power, but through suffering another way of thinking about this is through his neediness. You know, I mean, that is what suffering is after all, right? It's a lack of something. It's something that happens in our lives on the other side of neediness. This is what suffering is, not having access to what I need. If I'm in prison and I'm suffering in prison, I need freedom. I need the ability to move. I need some sort of social interaction. If I'm suffering from a disease, what do I need? I need health back in my body. If I'm suffering from hunger, I need food. If I'm suffering from thirst, I need something to drink. This is what suffering is. It's lacking what we actually need. And here's the interesting part about Jesus. Salvation in this space is made perfect through his suffering, through his participation in our neediness. It's the thing that we all have in our lives, but that none of us want to admit. This, I actually think, is the the reason why the incarnation is so hard for us it's because none of us want to admit that we're in need. None of us want to hold that neediness up as if it's something that is a part of our lives and always will. In fact, our social values sort of teach us the opposite. They teach us to push back in the other direction. But Jesus' participation in neediness shifts the needle away from our preconceived notions of who God is. The God who is for us and who is for our salvation is one who would participate in our need. And every time you and I deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it's because we're denying our own need in life. As if I need someone or something to come along beside me. And, and death, of course, is the centerpiece of this. It's the locus of this, of all human need in our lives. Every human, me, every human need that exists exists to thwart death. Right? I eat so that I won't die. That's why I'm eating. I need food so that I don't die. I need to avoid dying. I need sleep so I can try to avoid dying. The entire cycle of our lives is one constant motion, endlessly fending off death. We feed this need in our life. And if you and I were presented with a human Jesus, a really human Jesus, there's a part of us that wants to push back against this because we can't possibly associate a God who is sovereign and all-powerful with that level of neediness. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God who would hold the world in his hand, who spoke all things into existence, would display in God's self this level of neediness. We can't possibly bring those two worlds together. In fact, the question that I kind of wrestle with as I think about this is, why would I want to worship that? What makes that God worthy of my worship if that's the God that kind of comes back to me? But the incarnation event does something drastic, does something dramatic in understanding what human need is all about. When God takes on human need in the way that He does in this very being, He clarifies and He sanctifies your neediness. He brings clarity to the fact that every one of us are needy. And He makes that holy. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't push it away. But He makes it a holy part of our existence that we would have that. You know, as I said earlier, American Christians in particular have struggled with this because we live under the banner of self-sufficiency. Socially, that's who we are. And we elevate that self-sufficiency to a divine status. We make that part of who God is. So much so that we've often convinced ourselves that the more self-sufficient we are, the more we're like God. The more I can stand up on my own and not be dependent on anybody else, the more I look like God and act like God. And so we feel the social pressure all the time to just be fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry. I'm okay. You don't have to worry about me. I don't need anything in the world. I'm good. I'm fine. Right? And that's a common refrain that we put out there, and it's part of how we deny our own neediness in the world. And and Richard Beck, in his book, Unclean, that I've been kind of tracking with in this study, he does a great job of highlighting this for us. Listen to what he actually says. And this is a rather lengthy quote, but listen deeply to what he says. He says, the social pressure to be fine, to hide from others our vulnerability and failure, is the dark and pathological side of the American success ethos. It's the drive to become so materially successful as to eliminate all trace of need in our lives. It's the quest, as noted above, to be godlike, to separate ourselves out, be autonomous, self-contained, and without any need whatsoever. And here's what we think. We think, because of this, that self-sufficiency is what it means to be like God. We think that becoming uh, the person who stands on our own two feet is what God looks like, and then when you and I see the incarnation moment, everything changes, because what that does is it introduces us to a God who both gives and receives, right? A Father. This is the image of the Incarnation. More importantly, this is the image of the Trinity. The Father is one who continually pours out His love upon the world and upon His Son. And an important part of the Son within the Trinitarian makeup is that the Son is one who constantly receives the love of the Father, is one who is in need, And so within God himself is this idea of both giving and receiving. And what happens in this moment of mutuality, this give and take, is that we shift the center of God's being away from power, the self-sufficient, all-powerful one, the sovereign one, and we shift it towards love. The moment that you and I can start to recognize the give and take, the giving and the receiving, all of those things, the mutuality that is inherent is God, is the moment that you can shift your understanding of God who just wants to be empowering and in control of your life. You can shift it away from that, and you can find a God of love. You can find a God who both gives and receives, who invites you to receive his love, but also invites you to give his love to give His love to the ones who He loves most. This is what we take on every time we take on the incarnation in our life. And here's what I would suggest. Whenever you and I are blind to our own neediness, the unfortunate ramification is that you're also blinded to the needs of others. You don't see them. Part of being needy ourselves is being able to recognize the need in others around us. And each time we avoid the full weight of the incarnation, we overlook that neediness in our own life. When we overlook our own neediness, I unfortunately overlook the neediness of you, my brothers and sisters. We'll overlook whatever's happening around us and the need that exists in that space. I think this is actually part of what was happening when Jesus was talking about the speck in your neighbor's eye and the log in your own. You know, when we look at that story, so time, and it is a story about judging. Judge not lest you be judged. That's something that's in there. Normally we read this story where Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? We read it in a couple of ways. We either, say, we either say this, we say, you know, I don't wanna be that judgy person, so I'm gonna avoid being judgy altogether. Or we internalize it. We say, I don't have the right to judge somebody else because I've got too much stuff going on. Let me pause you just a minute. You ever thought that maybe what Jesus was doing in that moment was just highlighting our mutual need? You want to look at the speck in somebody else's eye, but you need help too. You have a log in your own, and and they need you, and you need them. There's this mutuality that's there. There's this neediness that is the core between the two. And, And what he's ultimately saying there is not that we don't need to judge each other, but that we do need each other. We do need each other in all of our lives, we all, all of us, all of us, from me up here to every person who's here, every person who's watching online, everyone in the world, we all have blind spots. We all have something in our vision that's blinding us from the true reality around us, and that's why you and I need each other, because we help each other see those things. We help each other call those things out to become aware of our own need, and love and mercy a love and mercy that we can share in those moments. Those are the real reasons why the incarnation is so important, and it's why it's such a radical necessity for our world. That's why it's really good news to tell the story of the incarnation that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and carried all the nasty things that go along with that. He carried those in his body because he demonstrated our neediness. And we needed him to show us constantly our level of need. We needed him to participate in that level of neediness in our flesh so that we could see a God who is constantly participating in your and my world, a God who is constantly a part of that in our world. And that's why, if I'm honest, that's why this table is so important for us right here, if you think about the table of the Lord, the way that it is set and established for us, this is a space where we get the constant reminder of our neediness in this world. Where, Where Christ takes flesh and blood and he forces us to participate in flesh and blood all the time. Now this Let me just be honest for a minute. This is disgusting. Right? I always, I know some of you are germaphobes and it kind of freaks you out to have to touch or grab bread. I get all that. There's a part of me that chuckles on the inside every time I see a germaphobe approaching the table because that's the point. (laughs) It is a disgusting act. A disgusting act where we take flesh the symbol of the bread, the the symbol of flesh, and we ingest it. And we take the symbol of blood, the juice, and we ingest it. That's gross. That's nasty. And that's exactly how God participated in our world. And when he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, he doesn't ask you to go out and pump up iron, you know, lift up weights, become strong and, and bold in the world. No, he says, I want you to participate every time you remember me in your neediness in your neediness for this table. And it's one of the beautiful ways that we as the body of Christ can gather around the table on this Sunday, All Saints Day, a day where we remember the saints who have lived and died before us. The saints who have gone on to experience the depth of suffering in this world, they've embraced it, but they embraced this table before we embraced it. And we name them today as ones who embrace this table, as ones who lived their life by it. And around this table on All Saints Day, we acknowledge those who've suffered under the weight of decay, but will one day experience the power of the resurrection. And we celebrate with them. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to participate at this table, this disgusting act, that clarifies for us who God actually is. I'm going to invite you into a space where you can once more clarify your own neediness. The spaces where you need this God, you need each other, and he's inviting you to see the need in others around you. Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts? Gracious God, I give you thanks for this, your table. I give you thanks for the elements that lie before us, flesh and blood, frail elements that you use to overcome the frailty of our existence. God, as we come before your table, sanctify us, set us apart, and display to us and to all our own neediness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.